Seriously, it is a great, great blessing to be here and, and to be able to share with you this morning. When Jason and I talked earlier in the week and I said, I'm happy to come, something just began to stir in me. Uh, and I felt like God impressing upon me a message. My natural mind said, why? But I've learned over the years, you don't question those things because it's not about me. It's about God's word and God's eternal purposes. And I believe that this word that God put on my heart this morning is for someone or someones who are here today. We live in a changing world. The good news is we have an unchanging God and we have an unchanging word from God. But the changes that we're seeing, especially those of us <clears throat> who are part of the, the classics over 55, <laughs> think about the changes that we're seeing in our society, in our culture, in our lifetime. We're seeing unbelievable changes. The sexual revolution that has come in such frightening proportions and at such a frightening rate of speed. And yet the good news is that none of this has taken God by surprise. God is not unsettled by any of these things, and neither should we be. But the thing that began to stir in my heart was from 2 Kings chapter 2. And if you have your Bible or your electronic device, I would just encourage you to begin to turn to that now. We're going to read several verses from that passage in a moment. But how desperate are we to see God, to see what God is doing? How desperately do we, we crave the presence of God in our lives? How far are we willing to go? What price are we willing to pay? Today, I want us to take a look into the life of the prophet Elisha. A man who wouldn't take no for an answer. A man who refused to settle for anything less than all that God had. So if you have your Bible open to 2 Kings chapter 2, let me begin reading in verse 1. Now, I use the New American Standard, so if that's a little different from your translation, you'll understand why. If you use the New American Standard and it still sounds different, it's because I can't read. And it came about when the Lord was about to take Elijah by a whirlwind to heaven that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Then the sons of the prophet who were in Bethel came to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, Yes, I know it. Be still. Verse 4, And Elijah said to Elisha, said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho approached Elisha and said to him, 
Do you not know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, yes, I know it. Shut up. No, it says be still. (laughs) I was just making sure you were with me. And then Elisha said, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Now, 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite them at a distance while the two of them stood by the Jordan. And Elijah took his mantle and folded it together and struck the waters and they were divided here and there so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. Now it came about when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And he said, you've asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. And then it came about as they were going along and talking that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elisha went up in a whirlwind into heaven. Elijah did. And Elisha saw it and cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and he tore them into two pieces. And he took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and returned and stood by the banks of the Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell on him and struck the water and said, where is the Lord? the God of Elijah. And when he had struck the waters, they were divided here and there, and Elisha crossed over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho opposite him saw him, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him, and they bowed themselves to the ground before him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, open our hearts to receive what you have for us today. I pray that you will bless the meditations of my heart, the words of my mouth. Let them be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength, my redeemer. Let nothing bitter come forth, but let it be sweet water that gives life for your praise and glory. Amen. Let me give us a little background here. In 1 Kings chapter 19, God spoke to Elijah and said, I want you, and he names them, to go anoint two men, and one was a foreign king. He was to anoint two kings and a prophet in training. It's interesting. God goes to, uh, Elijah goes to, and I'm trying to hurry, so I'm getting my mix all talked up here, so I'll try to consciously slow down. So Elijah goes... And as a part of that, he throws his mantle over Elisha. Elisha offers a sacrifice, says goodbye to his family. And for the next 20 years, he faithfully serves Elijah. He's there with him. It's interesting. In verse 21 in chapter 19, it says of Elisha that he ministered to Elijah. 
When we fast forward to where we are, and if we look into the next chapter, chapter 3, there's an occasion where kings come together and they want to fight a battle, and King Jehoshaphat says, isn't there a prophet of God? And they said, oh yeah, there is Elisha who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat immediately says, the word of the Lord is in him. It's a path to servanthood. Now, there's something that comes to mind as I look at this passage that is a real challenge to us who are a part of a congregation. Here is Elisha, who for 20 years faithfully serves the man of God, pours water on his hands, is his gopher in modern terms. He's ministering to him. He's serving him. And the question that we need to ask ourselves, how are we ministering to the man of God in our midst? Now, that's not the subject of our message this morning, but it's something that we must consider. How do we minister to the servants of the Lord who are among us? And as we look at what happens in 1 Kings 19, the anointing of God comes on Elisha and on his life. But you know what? He wasn't ready for the office. I look at my own life. I knew from the time I was in the eighth grade that God had called me to preach. I freaked out my wife the day I met her, told her that God had called me to preach and he was going to use me in a great way. She thought, who is this crazy guy? By God's grace, she married me anyway. The reality was, while I knew the calling of God was on my life, I wasn't ready for that calling. And here I am many years later, and I see God is still working in me because I'm not fully ready for the calling he's placed on my life, and I've been preaching for more than 50 years. But you see, that preparation for Elisha came through faithfully ministering to the man of God, to the prophet Elijah, serving alongside, watching him, learning from him, learning faithfulness and servanthood. But in the passage that we've just read, there's one more test that comes. It's an amazing thing. Elisha is a man who will not take no for an answer. He wants the anointing. He wants the mantle of Elijah. Three times when Elijah, very politely, did you notice as we read through these verses, Elijah says, please stay here. Please stay here. Elisha's response is, as the Lord lives, as in you live, I'm not staying. I'm going with you. That's the Gingrich translation, by the way, in case you didn't get that. There was a price to be paid. He had to stay focused. Isn't it amazing? In these places where he goes, everybody knows what's happening. The sons of the prophets knows what's going on. But he says, I'm focused. Don't bother me. But there's also going to come a time when Elisha will have to pick up that mantle. Staying focused. That would have been great, but if he doesn't pick up the mantle, there is no prophetic office. It's important for us to understand, too, the contrast between the ministry of Elijah and the ministry of Elisha. This is important to the context of what we're going to look at today. 
Elijah's name means the Lord is God. Elisha's name means God is salvation. The focus of Elijah's ministry is on Jehovah alone is God. For Elisha, it is God is the salvation of his people. Elijah does eight miracles. Elisha does 16. And the only person who did more miracles in the Bible is the Lord Jesus. It's an amazing thing to me. It is a time of transition in the prophetic ministry of the prophet of God. Under Elijah, there is death, there's destruction. Under Elisha, there's healing, there's restoration. Elijah's first miracle was to declare three and a half years of drought. Elisha's first miracle is to heal the waters. So Elijah, it's the judgment of God. Twice he calls down fire in 1 Kings 18, 2 Kings chapter 1. In Elisha, it's the mercy of God. For Elijah, it's protesting and standing against evil. For Elisha, it's God's willingness to forgive and to restore. Can, can you see there was a change that came as the mantle of prophetic ministry was transferred from Elijah to Elisha? And we need both. May I suggest to us that Elijah and Elisha are two sides of the same coin. God didn't change. It's two sides of the same coin. Let's go back to our passage. It's interesting to me, if you look in verse 1, the chapter begins by saying that Elijah and Elisha went up from Gilgal. The places where they go, the place where they start, are extremely important. The path to a double portion, the path to what God has for us, always begins spiritually at Gilgal, where God deals with our flesh. Now, let me be very quick to say that Bible scholars believe that there was more than one Gilgal. The first Gilgal that we're aware of is in Joshua chapter 5, where they come to Gilgal, they've crossed the Jordan. Amazing thing. God says to Joshua, circumcise all of the men. What a way to start an invasion. You physically incapacitate your army for two weeks. Gilgal means circle of stones. It's where God rolled away the curse. And covenant relationship is reestablished. It's a place where the scripture says they rolled away the reproach of Egypt. It's the place of coven coming into covenant relationship. I wish we had just a, a whole hour just to deal into this whole aspect of what it means to be in covenant relationship, but it's so significant that when David confronts the giant Goliath, he says the most amazing thing, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? He's not in covenant relationship with God. He's mocking God. He's mocking the armies of the living God. And if you're not in covenant relationship with the living God, you're in serious trouble. 
So if the children of Israel had any hope, any expectation of taking the promised land, they needed to be a covenant people and do what they had failed to do for 40 years in the wilderness and circumcise their flesh and become a covenant people. It's interesting to me, Romans chapter 2, verse 29, you would have looked at this several weeks ago, speaks about the circumcision of our heart. God needs to deal with the pride and the flesh that is within us. We are never ready for the mantle of God until we allow Him to deal with our flesh and to bring us into covenant relationship. And in relationship, it opens the doorway to revelation. Look at verse 2. Where do they go? Please stay, for the Lord has sent me to Bethel. What's so significant about Bethel? If you know your Bible, you know that Bethel means house of prayer. The house of the Lord, it's the place of communion, it's the place of intimacy, it's the place of revelation. And, and one of the things that I have been saying over the last 10 or 20 years, it, it became so real to me that revelation brings illumination that results in our transformation. When we see God and the light of God shines then into the darkness of our heart, we are transformed for His praise and for His glory. It's in Genesis 28 that Jacob meets God. Remember years ago we would sing, We are climbing Jacob's ladder. We are climbing Jacob's ladder. And all those cute little Sunday school lessons we have about Jacob's ladder. And what is it that we miss? We focus on the ladder. But what's most important is what Jacob saw at the top. He sees God. Genesis 28, verse 13. It's the first time that Jacob sees and hears God for himself. And it totally transforms him. What comes out of that is a covenant relationship that God establishes with Jacob in this little table under here. Uh, he establishes this covenant relationship with Jacob. And out of that, Jacob's response is what we know today is a faith promise commitment to God. He said, if you will return me to my land, if you will bless me, if you will keep me, and you'll return me to my land, I'll give you 10% of everything that I had. You see, it was graduation day for Elisha, but Elisha needed to spiritually experience Bethel, not just pay a visit as a tourist. We need to experience God. Tragically, we see in a few chapters later, you get into 2 Kings chapter 12, King Jeroboam takes this place, Bethel, where there's the school of the prophets. It's the place of meeting God. It's the place of revelation. It's a place of intimacy. It's a place of transformation. And King Jeroboam turns it into a place of worship 
idolatrous worship. He actually set up golden calves, appointed priests, and led the people into idolatry. What a heartbreaking event. Elisha needed to see these things. He needed to be consumed by them. In fact, it's interesting. One of the things that is spoken about the Lord coming out of Psalm 69.9, we read it in John 2.17 where it says that a zeal for the house of the Lord consumed him. Something has to be birthed within us about the house of the Lord and the people of the Lord. If God's calling on our life, there's got to be something that's birthed in us about God's people that gets a hold of us. Not that we get a hold of it, but it gets a hold of us so that we are never the same. The servant of the Lord must recognize and take to heart the condition of God's people. But it's time to move on. Again, Elijah says, verse 4, stay here. The Lord has called me to Jericho. Again, Elisha's response. Jericho, what an amazing place. Five miles approximately from the River Jordan. I'll never forget uh, the day we got to go to Jericho. What, what a blessing that was. You know what the most amazing things about Jericho? This isn't in my notes. It's free. Well, it's all free today. But uh, one of the most amazing things our guide said the walls of Jericho did not fall in or fall out. They've discovered that the walls actually sunk. How miraculous. Just a little tidbit there. It's the place of miraculous conquest. It's the place where the prophetic word of the Lord is fulfilled. It's the place where God's people saw the power of God's Word as they walked in obedience. And then on that seventh day, they shouted the shout of the Lord. It's also a city under a curse. In Joshua's chapter 6 and verse 26, there is a curse that is spoken over Jericho that says, Cursed shall be the man who rebuilds these gates. With the death of his oldest shall he set them, and with, shall he rebuild it, and with the death of his youngest will he set the gates. That was actually fulfilled in 1 Kings 16.34. Again, as it relates to what we're looking at today in this passage of Scripture, I'm absolutely intrigued that the sons of the prophets know exactly what's going on. How did they know all of these things? Everybody seems to happen. Again, Elijah's response is, don't bother me. I know what's going on. Just be quiet. I won't be distracted. And as I was going through this passage of Scripture again in preparation for today, I was just reminded how often the world and God's own people can become a distraction to us. Their intentions may be very good. Hey, you know what God's doing, right? And, and they're, just trying to, they're just trying to take our focus away. Brothers and sisters, we have to stay focused on the Lord. And I, and I will tell you, one of the things that is a part of my DNA is I'm always trying to figure out what God is doing in the world and what's happening. How does this fit into Scripture? 
May I say to us, while that is important, it can also become a major distraction to us because the greater issue is not what God is doing in the world. The greater issue is God. Am I seeing Him? Because if I'm focused on Him, then what's happening is going to be, oh, yeah, well, that makes sense. Why was I stressed out over that? Isn't it interesting? So many people in the church get paranoid about the mark of the beast. Oh, we don't want to get the mark of the beast. You know what nobody ever talks about? God says He's going to put a mark on His people. Why don't we talk about that? That was free. Just, I got to move on or Jason will never invite me to come back here and preach again. More sons of the prophets. Look at verse 6. Stay here. The Lord has sent me to the Jordan. See, the Jordan, that river, that's the place where we begin to exercise our spiritual authority. Again, the response. As the Lord lives, and as you lives, I'm not staying behind. I'm intrigued by the details of what happens here. Elijah doesn't say anything. He just takes his mantle, folds it, strikes the water, uh, and they part. No big deal. What also intrigues me is that glorious, glorious word in verse 11. They crossed over and they talked. Did you see that in verse 11? They talked. Did you ever wonder what they talked about? And you've got 50 sons of the prophets who come out watching all that has happened. They see Elijah take his mantle and fold it. They see him strike the water, and they see these two men walk across on dry ground through this Jordan River. The problem is they saw, but they didn't have eyes to see. We'll see that in a moment. Intriguing. What did they talk about? What has been going on here has been a final test for Elisha. And when they've crossed the Jordan, Elijah says, Now, what can I give you? What can I do for you? And what is his response? He said, I want a double portion. Amazing things that are happening here. Do you realize that in this passage of Scripture... For the first time in 500 years, the waters of the Jordan River will be parted twice and it will happen on the same day. Absolutely amazing to me. Elijah says, I want a double portion. And Elijah's response was, you've asked a hard thing. And I've always thought over the years even as I had prepared some things years ago about this, uh, this passage, I always thought that Elijah was saying, you've asked something really difficult for me to do. I don't believe that was it at all. I believe what Elijah was saying is, Elisha, you know, what you're asking for is really a tough job assignment. And you think about the depression Elijah was a man plagued with depression. He was a prophet of God. He was used of God to do eight mighty miracles. Remember when he calls down fire on, on uh, Mount Carmel? And what does he do next? He defeats the 400 prophets of Baal. And then what does he do? He goes and hides in a cave and has a pity party and says, everybody's trying to kill me. I'm the only prophet left. God says, stop it. Well, I don't think he said stop it, but he lists 
the hundreds that have not bowed their knee to Baal. See, Elijah knew that the calling to ministry is hard. I had an uncle in the Amish church who was ordained as deacon, and he got sympathy cards from people in the church. Now, we rejoice at the calling of ministry, but I'll tell you, it can be very hard. It can be very lonely. But Elisha says, I want a double portion. Now, we live in a consumer world. We live in a time where some segments of the Christian community, all they've thought about is all they can get from God. I want a double portion. I want more and more and more and more. And some segments of the community, uh, the Christian community, have defined, defined prosperity in terms of what kind of house you live in, what kind of car you drive, and how much money you have in the bank. Can I tell you what my definition of prosperity is? Having all my bills paid, 20 bucks in my pocket, and nobody trying to get it. See, what Elisha's asking for is the right of the firstborn. And we don't have the time to go through all of this this morning, but suffice it to say that the right of inheritance for the firstborn was if there were four kids, the father's inheritance, his wealth, was divided into five portions, and the oldest got two of them. You tracking with me on how that worked? What Elisha is asking for is the prophetic mantle, the prophetic office of ministry. He said, I want a double portion of your spirit. And there's an interesting Hebrew word there that's used. It is ruach. It's kind of like, is how you say that. It is of the breath of God. Now, in Genesis, where it says, the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the earth, and breathed into him the breath of life, it wasn't the Ruach. It was... That's the word that was used in the Hebrew. But this Ruach is a powerful word, and I could teach you for an hour just on that, but I won't. Elijah's response is powerful. Now, put this in the context that Elisha has been walking and living with Elijah for 20 years. But it comes down to this moment, and Elijah says, not only have you asked for a very difficult ministry, but if you have to eyes to see me taken, then you're going to get it. You will see that double portion. Again, he knew what he wanted. Intriguing verse 11. I, I just, my, my mind can't get away from this, where it says that they went on a long and talking. There's something in me that, that says their conversation in those final moments was totally different from any conversation that they had had in the previous 20 years. The Bible doesn't tell us. We have to be, be very careful not to read into scriptural silence. But I wonder about some of these things. He sighs it. He sees it happen. And look at his response in verse 12. This is really important. 
for us here in northeast Indiana, it seems really strange. But his response is, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And we would say, what a strange response. Here is this chariot of fire and horses of fire that separates them. Elijah's take up in a whirlwind, and Elisha's response is, my father, my father, which speaks of the closeness of their relationship. The chariots of Israel and its horsemen. What a response. You see, I believe that Elisha understood in those moments that Elijah was far more important to Israel than all of Israel's horses and chariots of war. And let me you in, in, uh, let you in on an interesting thing. In 2 Kings 13, the Bible says that Elisha was taken of the disease of which he was to die. And King Joash comes and weeps over the dying prophet and says the exact same thing that Elisha said when Elijah was taken to heaven. Fascinating. Go back to the scripture here. We read this. As this happens, he makes this declaration. He tears his clothes an act of brokenness and humility and grief. And then he picks up the mantle. Did you see that? He picks up the mantle, verse 13. Amazing. It's proof of the right of inheritance to the prophetic office. But seeing all of this happen would have meant nothing had he not picked up the mantle. You and I can know that there is a calling on our lives, but if we do nothing about it, that calling is meaningless. What does the Bible say about you and me? We are a chosen generation. We are what? A royal priesthood. A peculiar people. That doesn't mean we're weird. It means we're set apart for His purposes. That's God calling on your life. But if you do nothing about it, the calling is meaningless. I believe there is a calling on this church. But if you're a church, you don't do anything about it. The calling is meaningless. It's interesting what happens in verse 14. He walks back and he strikes the waters. And he makes a declaration. He says something that he will never, ever say again. Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And he strikes the water. Why would he say that? Was he looking for information? God, where are you? No. It was about confirmation that what he had seen what he had picked up was a real reality. Is this real? And he strikes the waters. Never again will he say those things. He is the man of God. He is God's man to the nation of Israel, the prophet. You know what's fascinating to me? Stick with me, I'm almost done here. The 50 sons of the prophets are watching 
all of this happen. Do you see that in verse 15? They've watched all of this happen. They didn't hear what went on between Elijah and Elisha, but they see everything happen. I seriously question, I wonder, did they actually see? I don't think they saw Elijah go up. I think all they saw was Elijah and Elisha and then just Elisha. And Elisha comes back with the mantle that they know is Elijah's. See him strike the water. And what is their response? The Ruach, the spirit of Elijah, is on him. And they come and they bow down and they pray. And then they do an interesting thing that tells me they didn't know what was going on. They shame him into sending out a search party to try to find Elijah. This really isn't my notes, but I want to show you something here. Let me see if I can find this quickly to illustrate that they don't know. Look at verse 16 if you have your Bible open. This is an indication. These are sons of the prophets. These are religious people, but they don't understand God. Look at what they say. Behold now. There are with your servants 50 strong men. Please let them go and search for your master, who isn't his master anymore. Now notice this. Perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has taken him up and done what? Cast him on some mountain or into some valley. They don't know God. God doesn't do that to his people. When he takes Moses up on the mountain and Moses dies, what does God do? He buries him. And I don't think it took an avalanche to do it. You see, it's the devil that does destructive things to his people. It's not God. They didn't understand the nature of their God. And so they shame him. And after the search party comes back and said, we couldn't find him. And Elisha says, yeah, I know. The problem is they didn't have eyes to see. I love the details in this passage of Scripture, but what stirs in my heart more than anything else is, God, open my eyes to see. Turn over to chapter 6 real quick. I want to show you this, and then we're done. Amazing passage of Scripture. Chapter 6. And we're going to look down at verse 17. Gehazi, Elisha's servant, has been caught up with greed after the healing of Naaman. And, uh, okay, I'm not finding it here right now. They're surrounded. Help me, Jason, I got myself in trouble here. I can't see it right now, but what happens is they're surrounded by the armies. And Gehazi is so terrified. And Elisha prays for him that his eyes will be opened. And when his eyes are opened, he sees that the mountains are filled with the armies of God. I do know this next reference is right. The Sermon of the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? See God. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters, that when we seek God with our own heart, 
He doesn't disappoint. When we die to self, when we keep our eyes on Him, He doesn't disappoint. Remember this too. Whatever God anoints, He takes ownership of. I'm so thankful for what God did for us in the 1970s and the 1980s as we began and we were a part of the charismatic renewal and we began to discover things about the anointing of God. But what we didn't understand is we always thought we wanted the anointing so that we had something. What we didn't understand, what you understand from the Old Testament is that whatever God anoints, He takes ownership of. There is a transfer of ownership. If we want the anointing of God, what we're saying is, God, let there be a transfer of ownership so it's no longer me, it is no longer I who live, as Paul says, but it is Christ who lives in me. There is a transfer of ownership so it's not about me. The church service is no longer about me. Do I like the singing? Do I like the preaching? No, there's been a transfer of ownership. So now my worship is not what fulfills me, but what glorifies Him. Boy, that'll preach too. We need God to open our eyes. There's a calling on our lives. But do we have eyes to see? That's the thing that I desperately cry for. I'm at that point in life where I'm, I'm, I'm realizing I want to finish strong. I'm going to live till I die, not exist. I'm going to live. I want to be productive for the kingdom. And as Irma Bombeck said, when I stand before God, I want to say, God, I have used up all the gifts you've given me. I want to say, God, I've used up every ounce of strength in body, soul, and spirit that you gave me, and I used it for your glory. But I need eyes to see what he's doing because there's so much going around us that is distracting. I need to see. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you for your word, for how it speaks to us, how it challenges us, how it confronts us. I pray today that by your word, you will continue to confront us. God, may we be like Elisha, who's not arrogant, but a man who is focused, who says, God, I'm going to do whatever it takes for as long as it takes for me to be in that position that you can use me for your glory. God, I feel so much like Gehazi. I can't see. But what an amazing thing. As Elisha prays, his eyes are open. We pray. We pray for ourselves this morning. I pray for these precious people that you will open the eyes of our understanding that we will see the truth of your word as we've never seen it before. Open our eyes to see you, not just what you're doing in our world, but to see you. Let that revelation bring illumination that results in our transformation for your praise and for your glory and not ours. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks, Dad, for coming and sharing with us on short notice, uh, putting something together. Uh, and, um, you know, I just think that, that uh, I won't preach another sermon here, but um, that, that notion is so essential for us to, to fix our eyes on God um, in, in, in the world we live in right now. And Dad kind of drew some of this out, that it, the world around us, of course, wants to distract us from fixing our eyes on God. Um, of course they do. Anything they can do to, to distract us, that's, that's what the world wants to do. But, but even within uh, the church, there are so many distractions, so many things trying to, to, to take our eyes off of God, to take them on to, to other things. And, and uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad, Dad, that you, you kind of pointed out that the sons of the prophets, the way they responded after all this happened, maybe God flung him onto a mountain somewhere or into a valley somewhere. We better go looking for him. And, and it does, as you said, it reveals they didn't know God. They had obviously had much experience uh, with God and the things of God. They, they knew exactly what was going to happen. They kept telling him, don't you know your master's going away? Uh, and yet when it came right down to it, they didn't know who God was. And the reason we know that is who, who would ever accuse God of doing something like that? That God would, would promise something to Elijah, and, but then it's a trick. Uh, and, and the truth is that uh, it's so essential for us to know who God is, who has revealed himself to be in Scripture, um, to, to know the holiness of God. Or else we won't, we'll believe even people within the church when they tell us not to take sin seriously. To, to know the, the power of God, or else we'll believe people even in the church when they tell us we should be shuddering in fear. When they tell us that we need, to, we need to watch out for every new technological advancement or medical advancement because it just might be the mark of the beast and you'll go to hell forever. There's no faith in that. God, friends, God's not going to, to trick you. He's not going to make it really tricky that you might accidentally do something that will damn you. Let me just tell you to breathe deep. That's, not, that's a really quirky way of reading the book of Revelation in a way the church has never read it before until the last 150, 200 years in America. It just happens to be the popular way of reading it. And Christians are freaking out. But it's because we, we're taking our eyes off of God. We don't trust him. If we fix our eyes on God, we trust him and we won't fear. And I think that's a, such an important word for us. To not fear. To not fear what a virus can do to us because we know God. Christians don't fear death. Much of the, the panic we're seeing in the world around us is because the world is panicked about death. And they should be. But we shouldn't be. We don't need to fear what's happening in our government and the way they're overreaching. It doesn't mean we should just go along with everything, but we don't need to be afraid as if somehow God's not on the throne anymore. We don't need to fear the rioting that's going on in the streets as if somehow things have gotten so far out of control that somehow God is not able to do exactly what he wants to do at any point 
at any time, that he's not able to preserve his people, that, that Christ's promise to build his church won't stand. But let's fix our eyes on God and let's call out to him in desperation. As dad pointed out, that story is so much about being desperate for the right thing. Being consumed by the right thing. Let us be a people consumed with seeing and knowing our God. Amen.